Listen for a word from God, Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 1. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of the other children because he was the son of his old age and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. They could not speak peaceably to him. A word of God. This is a story we know in a shorthand, in bullet point fashion, the story of Joseph and his coat of colors. Joseph is loved more than all the brothers because he's the son of Jacob's old age and whatever unnamed details we imagine. Joseph is the one. The brothers hate Joseph. The storytellers really use this language. We, we don't have to wonder if they said it. There's hate. They cannot get along peaceably. Joseph dreams a lot. His brothers bow down to him. Even the sun and the moon and the stars bow down to Joseph. Joseph has no confidence issues, shall we say. One day, his father sends him to check on his brothers who have all the sheep out in the valley. The brothers want to kill Joseph. One brother intervenes. There will be no bloodshed. Come on, he's your little brother. He tries to persuade the rest. This is, by the way, recorded in Genesis chapter 37. Instead of killing him, they strip him. They strip him of this special robe made by the father and they throw him into a pit while they sit around and eat supper and think about it for a while. Eventually, some traders come by and they sell Joseph to these traders. The special robe, they killed a goat. They smeared the blood of the goat on Joseph's robe and then went home and told their father, Joseph was eaten by a wild animal. The brothers live happily ever after. The father, not so much. The father wailed, couldn't be comforted and consoled. His favorite son is dead. The story readers know, however, that Joseph makes it to Egypt and he works now for the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's palace. The end. This story will go on with so much drama for 14 chapters. No wonder Andrew Lloyd Webber made a musical. The saga cries out for a soundtrack and set design and stage interpretation. It's so much drama. When Jesus moved around on the earth, the Bible says he used his time in therapy. The word for healing in the New Testament, therapuo. In the original language, it's the basis for our word therapy, to heal, to restore, to cure, sometimes, to bring health to every kind of thing. If we missed you last weekend, the holiday weekend, this is what we discussed and how a little parable about the harvest snagged the attention of the early Christian church. In and around these parables in Matthew's gospel the entire time, Jesus is doing therapy, healing from the beginning to the end of the gospel story. So much therapy that one needs to ask if this is the story. Jesus brings therapy to every kind of unhealth from beginning to eternity. Open the 66 books of the Bible and we find people wearing disease and illness and sickness 24 hours a day. We struggle to find the stories where people did everything just so and thrived. Where are those stories? 
rather, we get Joseph, the favorite brother, the siblings who lug rejection and the nurture of hate in a family, the scheme of abandonment and the birthing of a lie to cover their schemes. These are the stories of the generations. Genesis 37.2 says this is the story of the family of Jacob. The first line of the story, it's, it's a little formula called a toledot. Joseph and his siblings, they find their story in the generation of their father. Their story is actually Jacob's story. Ten times in the book of Genesis, we read this little formula. This is the story of, or these are the generations of. It's a marker in literature. That's the first line of a great saga. With every next generation, we'll get this marker. This is the story of. This is the generation of. It alerts us that we open our eyes and our ears. The first time we read this marker in the book of Genesis is Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. In case we doubt the significance of the good earth, the water, the plants, the skies, the cosmos, our story begins. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. As the moisture in the atmosphere created crystals and released snow this week from Texas to Greece, a snow-covered Acropolis, Every incident of nature speaking in a loud voice reminds me this is also the story of the heavens and the earth that God called good. So Jacob's story. Jacob's story is the final story in Genesis, this long book, 50 chapters. Joseph and his brothers, they don't escape the fingerprints of the previous generation. There are personalities and temperaments and gifts, passions and experiences and preferences and successes and failures. All of those linger on the next generation. They're not simply tracing lineage. It's the making of a generation, the making of pedigree and of history, even religious history. Joseph and his brothers, they're not the first in the family to leverage jealousy and envy and loneliness and anxiety, identity or confidence deficits, deceit, lies. We teach ourselves to lie and to deny and to avoid the outcry. Covering our tracks, it's a genetic predisposition predisposition, it turns out. It runs in the family and it shapes the family. We could even say it creates family culture. Things do really run in families from the smallest creatures to the largest. So listen, let's talk pets for a minute. Any, any of you get a pandemic pet? Were you among those hundreds of thousands of people acquiring pets during the pandemic to bring a little comfort into the home? Our daughter in Washington State, our Elisa, she acquired a pandemic pet that's for sure. So there are now two dogs in the house. And the first snowfall came last week in Seattle. So she sends a picture. There is one dog in the house absolutely crazy for the snow. And then there's another who's thinking about it. There's a Siberian Husky. And there's a new-to-them shelter dog, a breed yet to be determined. One dog in the house wants the snow. He, listen, he comes from the Siberian Arctic, right? The edge of the Bering Sea. They migrated these dogs to Alaska with Russian fur traders in the gold rush. Animals have 23 and me too. It's fascinating. He has a double coat of fur, this dog, Echo. He's bred by indigenous people, the Chukchi people. 
They pull sleds, these dogs, and they work in packs and they run free in the summer to catch their own prey until the snow comes and then they go back to the village for food for the winter. They're raised in family settings, responsive to children. They don't lose their desire really to escape and run free in the snow, preferably with a pack. These are the generations of the Siberian Huskies. And then there's the other dog in the house, Bodhi. Not so much. A German Shepherd, Labrador, Golden Retriever, something. A beautiful blend of breeds, not known yet. His people are a little less defined right now because he's still learning his place in this blended home just one month out of the local shelter. So his family history is a, a little lost in dislocation. But we know one thing about Bodhi. Bodhi's not from the snow people. It turns out long coats of hair, especially hair around the paws and the pads of the feet, not compatible with the snow. We can see it, right? We can see it. These pets come from places with people, with traits and imprints and, imprints and habits and preferences and minds of their own. These pets formed and shaped by their cultures. Maybe it helps us if we talk about our pets. We can be a little more truthful about the human family and our family tree. I mean, these are conversations that evolutionary biology and epigenetics, so many fields of study, talk about these things. What imprints species to be the way we are? If we check the family tree, dozens of connectors, back to the story with Joseph, dozens of connectors with Joseph and his brothers and their ancestors. If you enjoy reading a good novel, you will love Genesis 37 to 50, Abraham's family tree. We, we learn some things, some things that run in the family. Deception runs in this family. It turns out great-grandfather Abraham struggled with lies. He lied more than once, passing his wife Sarah off as his sister so he could get what he wanted. It turns out that Jacob has a twin, Esau, deceiver from the womb. They live under the shadows of this lie all of their life. And their mother, Rebecca, she's a co-conspirator in the telling of that lie, the birthright story, the birthright belonging to Jacob, but given to Esau because the father, Isaac, was too blind to know the difference. Jacob raised some boys who are able to pull off some similar deception. So we watch this little detail in the story. It's a goat Jacob used to deceive his father, and it's a goat the sons used to deceive him. There's trembling and tearing of the inner coats in one generation and the other. Even Joseph knows how to deceive when his brothers finally come to Egypt for the famine relief. Joseph conceals himself. He hides out. He teases his brother, actually, over the course of years. Uncle Laban, he's a liar too. Jacob worked for Uncle Laban on his land long before Joseph was born. He was working for the promise of a wife. Remember the story of Rachel? He wants Rachel to be his wife, but Uncle Laban tricked him. That night, on the wedding night, instead of bringing in Rachel to Jacob, he brings in his second daughter, Leah, which forces a marriage. And, and, and Jacob has to work another seven years to earn the rights to Rachel. There are connectors of deceit. There are connectors of favoritism, too. Favoritism runs in the family. Rachel, supposedly the lovely one, and Leah, less. Laban sets in the cycle that repeats itself in the next generation. These sisters, they produce sons who fall into the same categories. Rachel gives birth to Joseph and Benjamin, favorite sons from a favorite wife. 
their sons postured up and against their other other sons birthed from the less favorite wives. Birthright battles run in the family. Birthrights, this big deal. Position of honor goes to the firstborn, always goes to the firstborn. But in this family, there's a, a history of the birthright falling to the secondborn. Remember Esau lost his birthright? So did Reuben. And when this story concludes at the end of Genesis, Joseph's Egyptian firstborn son also loses his birthright to his baby brother. There are more egregious incidents in this story when the parents behave so badly and parent so passively that the children move in to clean up the messes. Read Genesis 34 this afternoon if well after you digest your lunch. It's an ugly story. None of us sign up. We don't sign up intentionally to internalize family pain. But family pain left unchecked, life repeats. Left unnamed, life numbs. Left unrepented, healing is postponed. When we come from our private homes and spaces and we gather in any place, we we wear these family stories, including these unchecked, unnamed, unrepented episodes. Add to this the mix of every other kind of illness, disease, and sickness. The fact that the book of Genesis doesn't edit all of this out but allows allows it to be, it lends even more credibility to the Bible. Why not clean this story up before you let it out? except for to let God's creation know the path to wellness walks the long road. And there's no protection from unhealth because one is Christian. There is access to resources and a story that infuses this long journey with meaning. If you decided to pick up these books, Seth Pierce's book, Seeking Understanding, or Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Tav, Both authors talk at length about what must happen to create a culture of healing. They tell us we are all the time in the process of shaping our culture. We're shaping our La Sierra culture, and our La Sierra culture is shaping us. Let me share a couple of graphs from McKnight. The first, we'll talk about church culture, but this applies to any culture we want to name. We might think that the culture is largely taught by the pastors or the leaders. There's truth to this. We tell stories and cast visions and lead conversations and and we look after strategies. And then there's the congregation who also informs the culture with more stories and, and vision casting and conversation and strategies. And then there's a continual interaction between the leaders and the congregation and the congregation back to the leaders. We act out our culture. Whatever culture we have around here, we created the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. There's still more, though. Over time, culture acts on us. Culture acts on us. It becomes a self-reinforcing, almost an invisible, out-of-sight agent, forming and shaping the church. The church is its own culture. Whatever people experience in our services and in our outreach and our interaction and our companionship with you, with me, that defines our culture. It's not incidental. We can swap out 
church culture, for any other culture we'd like to talk about, it works about the same way. There's a school culture and an office culture. There's corporate culture and there's a city culture, a state culture, a nation's culture, a country's culture. There's ethnic and race cultures. And my goodness, there are family cultures. You all come from a family. We all come from families. What's your family culture? I mean, are you the family that throws the door open wide and welcomes in strangers unannounced, you know? Are you the quiet family? Are you the loud family? Are you, there's so many layers to our family cultures. Seth Pierce says, we actually live in multiple cultural spheres. There's not one the culture out there. There are multiple cultural spheres operating all the time, and God is at work in every one of them. So we wear all of these cultures when we mix and mingle and create this new thing called church. Our family culture, our church family culture, we're not passive recipients. At some point, we choose to lead it, just like we choose to lead our own families and lead our own communities. We're not passive recipients of a culture. We're co-creators. Our actions shape our culture. So Scott McKnight is a little bit scolding when he asks us, are you choosing a church based on who's preaching? That's silly. Or or, or on a great worship band or even high classical choir orchestra. That's crazy, he says. Choose a church family because of the culture it's actively creating. What are the experiences you have with the people? And what are the stories the people tell? And who are the outsiders the people welcome in? Choose a church because they nurture a culture of grace and goodness, grace and healing, grace and hope. Choose and be a church with an empathy radar. This empathy we can learn to develop. Empathy is when we exit our own feelings and we enter the feelings and the stories of others. Developing an empathy radar, it's a commitment to listen to the stories and the feelings of others. Last week, I shared a small story about my own life um, and and an incident from growing up being afraid that someone was going to kidnap me from my own home, that adopted children feel these things. And when I told that story in public once, after the service was over, a woman came straight down to the front, waited in line, shook her finger at me and said, that that's just not true. What you said about adopted children, it's just not true. So stop saying those things. And then she walked away. Okay, that's a great example of a lack of an empathy radar. We have stories. No one can take those from us. Thank you for those who are asking this past week, oh man, how can we be present with our teenagers, especially when we're able to return and be back here in person? We already know top three dynamics teenagers are experiencing, even before pandemic, mistrust with, this, with the church and the denomination, mistrust, anxiety, isolation, identity, developing empathy radars to listen to the kids talk about things, these things. It's a brilliant first step. If we go back to Joseph in Egypt, let's go back there for a moment. Remember, he ends up in Egypt. The brothers sold him, and the father thinks he's dead. It turns out he's with Pharaoh. He interprets the dreams for the Pharaoh. He becomes kind of the CEO in charge of famine protection for the land, all of Egypt and all of Egypt's neighbors. Famine does come, and it's severe. 
Joseph's father and brothers and family, they're deeply impacted by the famine. They make trips down to Egypt more than once for food and survival. Joseph, who's passed off at dead at age 17, well, there comes a time when Joseph is confronted with his brothers. Oh, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. It's a series of back and forth trips to Egypt, but on the last trips, there comes a moment when Joseph steps forward with a weeping face and he reveals himself to his family. Genesis chapter 45. Listen to what he tells his 10 trembling brothers. These are the guys who sold him into slavery. Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all those who stood with him, he cried out, Send everyone away from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed they were at his presence. Then Joseph said to the brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, but God sent me here to preserve life. Joseph establishes his family with food. Pharaoh gives them land and clothes and possessions. The family is protected throughout the famine. Never were bitter words spoke. There were, were not massive rebukes from Joseph, no revenge back to his brothers from his own position of power. We see a scene of reconciliation, though that word is never used. 17 years go by and the father, Jacob, dies and the brothers are frightened that now Joseph will retaliate. If dad is dead, we're in trouble. They'll, they'll finally get what they deserve. Joseph might cut them off. Again, they make the trip and Joseph says to them, and it's the climax of the story at Jacob's funeral scene, Genesis chapter 50, verse 18. Then his brothers also wept. They fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous amount of people as he's doing today. Have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Here are the brothers, afraid, rehearsing past sins already forgiven. They've even come with a lie. They've made up a lie to tell Joseph that we know our father told you to forgive us before he died. For these brothers, grace was too good to believe. This, all of this, is the story of Jacob's family. Friends, God has gifted us with deep reservoirs for reconciliation. We can be wounded healers or wounded resisters. Joseph becomes a wounded healer. The overwhelming evidence in the book of Genesis is that God blesses. God is the constant in the story, by the way. Whether the land is barren or the wombs are barren or the relationships are fractured, God remains faithful. This is the story of Jacob's family. 
and perhaps why the trauma is not edited out of the Bible, because God does not change God's mind about creation. Over and over, more than 80 times in the book of Genesis, God blesses, God blesses, God blesses. We can be wounded healers or wounded resisters. Remember that we carry these identities with us everywhere we go. Multiple cultures colliding all the time. Choice by choice by choice we choose. What shall we be? If you haven't joined our 40 Days blog, these days leading up to four days with Jesus, we invite you to subscribe. This year we decided to do pictures only. In one picture or one image, show us a scene or a picture of healing. What inspires healing to you? Maybe this week you've seen some of the pictures. I shared the first picture early in the week. This is a picture from 2004. Oh, there are many more pictures that go with them. Look at these while I tell you a bit. Uh, 2004, the pastoral team here went to South Africa. Pastor Devo arranged this to visit his hometown where his parents lived to speak at the camp meeting there for really thousands of people over the Easter holiday weekend. But we were very well aware. I was very aware. We are white people coming from a wealthy nation. Before we left on this trip, one of the cautions we got from John Webster, our professor, was don't go there thinking you're fixing anything. Don't go there and speak about apartheid. Don't, go, don't even name it. Go there and teach the gospel, Dr. Webster told us. We were very aware, moving around the campgrounds. There's a team of La Sierra pastors in South Africa. I was very aware. Here's a female pastor moving around at campgrounds in South Africa. I was assigned with the women, the women in the women's ministry. That was the safest place for me. And I was also very aware that there was murmur in the camp between signing Bibles. What an experience. Talk about cultures colliding church. Between signing Bibles and having questions in the street about who, why are you even here talking to us? Don't you need to go home and take care of your family? And on the final Sabbath afternoon, Pastor Devo arranged that I would speak to the, 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 the final gathering in the main tent, maybe the first time a female voice had addressed this gathering. Whatever you do, Dr. Webster said, teach the gospel. The gospel is reconciliation. The gospel is that healing between people and nations and stories. We can be reconciled one to the other. All I knew to do that week in the camp was go to the kitchen and find the people and ask them what they eat. And maybe there, healing could happen. What in the world could I possibly say about hate between people coming from this nation? But the gospel, the gospel can speak life into that. We can be wounded healers or wounded resistors. What do you choose?